and hopefully you got a little bit of a picture of the ministries that were involved. So we have quite a lot going on in South Africa. I'm happy to tell you, though, that the, the Lord really brought our city to its knees with no water. We got to the point to where we were collecting bottles of water, thinking that there was going to be no more water in the taps to come out of the faucet. And uh, this video was make, made in June. That's when we came back from South Africa to do some more fundraising so we could continue our ministry there. And over their winter, which is during your summer, they got an unusual amount of rain. And so God answered our prayers. And so that drought is temporarily over, or at least for the most part, the dams are 75% full. We are still under water restrictions. But uh, God has been good. I think many times God brings us to a place where we realize that we're completely and totally dependent on Him. And if He doesn't send the rain, then, um, then we're going to have a problem. And so we uh, were uh, churches across South Africa, individuals, families, and as a school and as missionaries, we were praying that the Lord would send rain, and He did. And, you know, I, I, thought, I couldn't help but think as I looked at the, the wife, look at her husband, and the husband looked at his little baby at the end of the video, and, and the sadness and the uh, discouragement uh, that, pro that I'm sure comes through going through that type of experience, that uh, we have the privilege as mi of missionaries of giving them hope. That the Bible says we don't have to sorrow as others who have no hope. And uh, if we know Christ is our Savior, we can give them the hope that they're going to see their baby again one day. And uh, what a privilege we have of being able to do that. Well, this morning I'm going to share with you a message. I'm very privileged that I get to be the last uh, missionary of the missions month and on the last Sunday, and I'm very honored that I would be asked to share with you this morning. And I'm just going to preach a very simple message this morning called Why Missions? Why Missions? And the first um, verse that I want to share with you this morning comes from two verses, Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. And if we just sort of set the stage for this scripture, uh, as we get to the book of Acts, Jesus has already come to this earth, been born, and lived a sinless, perfect life. He spent three and a half years doing miracles and doing ministry and preaching and teaching. And then he has given his life to die on the cross. He's been tortured. He's had the crown of thorns put on his head. He's been whipped to the point to where you wouldn't even recognize him as a human being. And he has been allowed to suffer on the cross and to die. But we know that the story doesn't end with him being in the grave. And that he rose from the dead the third day. And we know that the reason that he suffered was so that we could have the hope of eternal life. He suffered and died in our place to pay for our sins. And as he's Getting, he's now come back in his glorified body. He's been on the earth for about 40 days. He's been seen by a number of people. And he's getting ready to ascend up into heaven to go to be with his heavenly Father. And before he leaves, he gives what we call the Great Commission. And this is in several places throughout Scripture. We'll look at just two of them to begin with. And the first one I want to look at is Acts 1.8. And he says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, it is necessary for Christ to suffer. Why was it necessary? Because if he had not suffered, we would die in our sin and spend an eternity in hell. Yet he suffered so that he could die in our place. In fact, it was a legal transaction that took place. Right? Imagine yourself standing before a judge. He sentenced you for a horrible crime that you've committed. That sentence is death. You plead with him. You beg him. You said, please, 
I'm going to be good from now on. I really didn't mean to do it. Whatever excuse you give, can the judge let you go off without paying the penalty? No. Because if you've been convicted and if you're guilty, then if he is a righteous judge, then he must sentence you to pay for your crimes. Otherwise, we would not have a criminal justice system that works. And yet, as we stand before our Heavenly Father, who is our God, we know that we have no hope of entering into heaven with our sin. And so that's what Jesus Christ came along to die on the cross for us to take our place, to pay for our sin. And it's as if somebody comes in the courtroom and says, hold on a second, before you sentence him to pay for his crime, let me pay for his crime. Let me pay the penalty. Let me die in their place. And so it says here, it was necessary for Christ to suffer, not only that, but to rise from the dead the third day. Why? Because he could defeat death. Right? If he can defeat death, then he can help us to defeat death. If he can come back from the dead, then so can we. Right? That grave is not the end for us. The grave is only the beginning. It's only the gateway to glory if you are a Christian. And so we don't have to... It's like a bee that has no stinger because a stinger is already in Christ, one person put it. And so he says here, and that repentance, in verse 47 of Luke 24, and remission of sins. That's important, repentance. What is repentance? It's turning from your sin and going in the opposite direction. We're not just preaching a feel-good message you know, God's going you know, to make everything wonderful for your life. You know, just trust in Jesus. No, there's repentance involved. You have to recognize your sin, and you have to ask for, plead for his mercy. Recognize there's no hope without Christ. That you cannot earn your salvation. Even your righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And so it says here that we should repeat repentance and remission of sins in his name where? Among nations. That's that's. What's among all nations, but where does it begin? It begins at Jerusalem. That brings me to my first point. Missions must begin at home with our own families, within our local church, and to our own neighbors and community. If we will not go across the street, then how is God going to use us to go across an ocean? If I, as a missionary, was not willing, when I was growing up in San Diego and Fairfield, California, and Pensacola, Florida, and especially when I got saved at the age of 13 and accepted Christ as my Savior in a Christian camp in the desert of California, and when I went back to my home church, I was taught as a very young Christian that you have a job to do. Even when I was only 13, very shy, scared to talk to people, they would take us on a bus and we'd go out into Fairfield, California with our church and we'd go start knocking on people's doors. And we'd give them gospel tracts and we'd invite them to church and we always asked a question. If they let us, sometimes they didn't want to talk. We would say, if you, do you know if you died today where you would spend eternity? And I remember going out and doing that as a 13-year-old teenager and having opportunities to share the gospel. Then I remember as I got older being involved in Sunday school and, even, uh, think, and then going to my neighbors and to people around me. And I remember even as a missionary raising support to go to South Africa, I'd gotten kind of complacent and we'd get kind of busy. And I was living in Indiana. And I was raising support to go to South Africa, but I'd lived there for almost a year, and I had not even bothered to go talk to the neighbors or to share the gospel with them. And the Lord brought me under conviction that how can I expect God to send me across an ocean if I won't even go next door in Indiana? And so I started with one of the men in the church. We would go out once a week, and we would just talk to people about the gospel. And, and I found that if you don't make an appointment and you don't make a decision that you're going to talk to people or establish relationships with, with people with the purpose of sharing the gospel, 
It just never happens many times. You know, you might be waiting for them to bring it up because you're not sure what to say, but we have to have the courage to do so. But missions begins within our local church. Get involved in your local church. Make sure you spend time with your children, with your family, with your grandchildren to give them the gospel. Or if, if they won't listen, then make a deal with one of your friends because, you know, family is the hardest people to witness to sometimes, aren't they? They don't want to listen to you. You know, they grew up around you. They knew you. They knew you at your worst. And so it's very difficult. And so I heard it, I heard it said like this, and I think it's a good idea, and I've, I've seen it done. Well, they said, well, if your family won't listen to you anymore, then make a deal with somebody. Say, if you'll talk to my family about Christ, then I'll talk to your family about Christ. Because they tend to listen to strangers or other people more than to listen to us. And even with our own children as become teenagers, you know, get people to mentor them and encourage them. And so we need to make sure that missions, and right here in our neighborhoods, when I was in Pensacola, Florida, we used to go into the projects and play sports with the kids and then sit them down and tell a Bible story and then pick them up for church. And we'd use my dad's station wagon. And we'd pick anywhere from two to ten kids up for church every Sunday. And there's still a couple of kids today that I heard back through Facebook a while back that said if it wasn't for you guys as young college students coming to our neighborhood and doing a Bible club and bringing us to church, we would probably be either in jail or on drugs or dead, because that's what happened to a lot of our friends from the community that we're from. And so mission starts at home. It begins at Jerusalem, and for the early church, it was for them beginning at Jerusalem, but it doesn't stop there, does it? Because missions must continue beyond that. Because at the same time, it says here, it says, into Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so as I grew in my walk with the Lord and as I began more and more involved in my local church, I started to encounter missionaries. And they would talk about their opportunities and they would talk about what great things that God was doing around the world. And I'd hear about Russia and I'd hear about China and I'd hear about India and I'd hear about Africa and South America. And I went on a missions trip to Mexico, just down near Mexico City, to Tlapa, to a children's home, and to Cuernavaca, Mexico. And, uh, and my wife and I even considered going to Europe, to Austria. And as you hear about what God is doing around the world, you begin to realize that the need is great. And I began to ask the Lord what he wanted me to do. And at first I thought, well, I was an accounting and a business uh, major in school. And I thought that I would just be one of those people that worked a normal job, stayed involved in my local church, and did local missions. And then I would give so somebody else could go. But I wasn't willing to go because I thought, I don't have the ability to be a missionary. I'm just a regular person. You know, I'm good with math, with numbers. I love kids. I love teaching. But when it comes to missions, I never thought that I had the ability that was necessary. And then a missionary came to our church from South America who had been a World War II veteran. He was a fighter pilot who had given his life to serve as a pilot for missionaries down in South America. And he had used those talents and abilities for the Lord. And he said something that really spoke to me. He said, God is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. He, doesn't, he will use any ability. And in fact, God chooses weak things of this world to confound the wise. And many times when we are so proud and we think that we're so great, God can't use us. But when we realize we're weak and that we need his help and we ask for God's strength, then God can use us because he uses humble people. He uses willing people. He does not use proud people. And so I remember at a missions conference at our church, I was, I was almost done getting my degree in accounting and business. 
just coming down to an altar at a church in Florida and saying, God, I don't know what I can do and I don't know where I can go, but I am available. Well, let's look at the second point here, and that is that missions was ordained by God in the Great Commission, but not only that, missions gives a living hope to a dying world. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3, which was already shared, but I'll share it with you again. Here he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and His great mercy, He has given us new birth. And I'm so thankful, by the way, for the mercy of God. Mercy means He didn't give us something that we deserved. Mercy is, you deserve punishment, but guess what? You didn't get it. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Into what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have an opportunity as a church, as individuals, to send missionaries, to go ourselves to do missions, and give hope, a living hope, to a dying world. In fact, I looked up some statistics about missions, and I was really surprised at what I found. Because I looked at what the different religions were. Do you know there's about 206 million people in the world that believe in animism, which is very prevalent in Africa? And that amongst those groups of people that believe in animism, there's 1,004 unreached people groups. These are groups of people, sometimes in the thousands, sometimes in the tens of thousands, sometimes in the millions, but there's 1,004 different groups of people who believe in animism, who have not heard the gospel or not a clear presentation of the gospel. That's 2.9%, so it's a very small percentage. 4.7%, though, or 1.028 billion people, believe in Hinduism. And amongst those who believe in Hinduism, there's 2,314 unreached people groups around the world. 18.6 live in China, percent of the population, 1.29 billion. Do you know that in China alone, there are 428 unreached people groups. And I've heard of God doing great things in China. Of course, many times people have to be undercover missionaries because they're not always allowed to give the gospel openly. And it depends on what province or area you live in. 22% of the world's population believe in Islam. Some of these are the countries where if you become a Christian, you literally are threatened to be killed by your own family. And you... Um, Many people are being martyred even today for their faith. They're literally dying because they have chosen to follow Christ. Yet they're willing. Yet the churches in some of these areas it's stronger than it is even in America because it's so easy for us here to be Christians. There, if they're going to choose to become a Christian, they have to choose to give up everything. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He that who not does, leave, does not leave mother and father is not willing to give up homes for me, is not worthy of following me. The reason he had to say that to this group of people as he knew that persecution was coming. And just like in the early church, there were many people who, and even the disciples themselves, who literally lost their lives because they followed Christ. There are many people in these countries, and there's 2,854 unreached people groups. I, I, we just, this week, we're at a doctor here uh, in California that he himself goes once or twice a year over to Iraq. And he says they've been able to minister among the Yazidi population and he said, oh, over time, over a period of going there two or three times, four, five, six times, he said they've had opportunities to share the gospel with these people, and they've seen many people come to know Christ through going to this area that you're not even allowed to give out the gospel. And yet they go to give medical help, and in doing so, people start asking him, what are you doing here, and why are you coming all the way to Iraq? 8.9% of the population, or 621 million people, believe in Buddhism. 
there are 449 unreached people groups amongst those people. And then there are 28.6 or 2 billion people that claim the name of Christ, but of those, only about 7% are evangelical Christians that would believe the gospel the way we do, as salvation only by grace through faith. And that it's interesting that they did a study and found that if 10% of those people, actually not 10%, if all of those people, 550 million, gave 10% of their finances to the church and to missions, we could send 2 million new missionaries to the world. But what I want to focus on here for just a minute is that we have an opportunity with a world that is dying that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And so for missions to continue, there's two things that we have to do. And I'm going to end with this and share one more verse, two more verses here. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. But let's just go back first to 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. It says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in the things, all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound to every good work. So what is necessary for missions to continue? Well, first of all, we have to be willing to sacrifice and give, but not because we have to, not because we feel guilty. I had a friend tell me recently, oh, I give because I feel guilty if I don't. That's not why we should give. We should give because we want to. It's kind of like giving your children gifts at Christmas time. I mean, isn't it fun to give family and give your children? You can't wait to see them open the gift because you've got something that you thought that they would enjoy. And we as Christians have an opportunity to give a gift financially and help missionaries to go to places where people need to hear the gospel, where God is doing a great work. And by the way, I, I know that you as a church are already doing this, and I want to commend you as a church for what you're already doing in giving. And I met missionaries at the table next to us who've been in Romania. And they talked about how when they went to Romania, that people, are, people in Romania are so open to the gospel. And so many people are hungry. And even in South Africa, we have the opportunity to share the gospel with people who here in the States, you go and give out tracts and you talk to people and they end up on the floor and people are sometimes very cold towards the things of the Lord. Yet in South Africa, when I go out with Uncle Frank, who is one of the men in the church, and we go out and talk to people in the neighborhood, people are very open and they're willing to listen. But we can't do that. We can't share the gospel. You know, recently we had some students in our, one of our classes, we had a chapel service. And we said, anybody who needs to get saved, who needs to accept Christ, you need to stay after chapel. And we had, like, like one of the classes, like all the boys in the class stayed behind. And after school, I asked them, I said, what happened? And they were jumping up and down. We're saved, we're saved, we're saved. And they were all excited. And they said, we're going to heaven. And it was so fun to watch the excitement on these children's faces. But if it wasn't for some people in America who 18, 19, 20 years ago, 16 years ago, including the Logans, who helped us to go, who supported us financially, who sacrificially gave to us, we would not have been able to move to South Africa and give the gospel to those children. And so we are reminded that God loves a cheerful giver, and he will take, just like the boy with the five loaves and the two fishes, he'll take what you give, he'll multiply it, and he'll bless it. And that's what God does, especially when we give to missions, but also when we give to our local church. He takes it, he blesses it, 
And he does incredible things with what we, we have given. And then Matthew, uh, Mark 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then the, another verse that's not on there I want to share with you is Matthew 9, verse 37. It says this, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. And I can't help but think that when there is a field that's been planted, there's seed that's been sown, it's grown, and it's ready to be harvested, what happens if there's nobody to pick the fruit? What happens? It falls to the ground and it dies. And we as a church, we as Christians, have a responsibility to go and to be those laborers. We can either send laborers for us as our ambassadors, or we can ourselves go. But we can also pray. A lot of times we underestimate the power of prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the, called the Prince of Preachers, um, he said this, he said, I'd rather train one man to pray than ten men to preach. And he said, I think we underestimate the power of prayer. In fact, he talked about two sermons that he had preached. The first one, the sermon went very well, and he was so proud of himself because everything came out right. And the second sermon was he felt a miserable sermon. And he said that second miserable sermon, he just, he just kept fumbling over his words. He kept saying the wrong thing. After that second sermon, he prayed to God, please use that sermon. Please use the sermon. This miserable sermon of mine, please use it. Now, he would follow up on all of his sermons with people who had come forward or people who had uh, come to church, had visited. And he said that first sermon that he thought went so well, they didn't really pray much about because they thought he did such a good job. He said nobody got saved as a result of that sermon. The second sermon, he said he tracked many salvations as a result of that sermon. But it wasn't because his sermon was so wonderful. It was because his prayers were so earnest. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so I'm going to ask you as a church to pray. Pray that God would send forth more labors into the harvest. We need missionaries in South Africa. I know you've got Nathan who's going to Japan. I know there's more missionaries needed in China and India and Iraq and South America and all over the world. There's a need for missions, and I've seen it personally, where missionaries are overworked sometimes and they've got so much to do, and they're praying for more people to come and help them. So I'm going to ask you to pray. I'm going to ask you to consider going yourself. It can be a short-term missions trip, or it can be as a career missionary. But if God would allow you to go, at least be willing. Now, maybe you won't be able to, but just say, Lord, if you want me, I'll go. But if you can't go, that's okay. Because we need people who will give so that others can go, and you're already doing that as a church. And I want to commend you for how God is using you as a church to reach people all over the world with the gospel. The Bible says in Luke 6.38, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down and running over shall men give unto you. For with the same measure you will give, it will be given back to you. And we're reminded in the word of God that there is a law of sowing and reaping. That as you sow, that is how you will reap. So if you sow, giving generously to the Lord's work and helping others who are in need, then it's like when the Bible says when you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. Regardless of how they use it, whether they use it wisely or they don't, we can become very cynical and we can see how people sometimes misuse or I've been given to th things or people that I realize later that maybe I shouldn't have. But at the same time, with that, when I give, I'm not giving to them anyway, I'm giving to the Lord. And when I serve in South Africa, 
when I get discouraged and maybe my students don't appreciate me or maybe the people in your, you know, that you're ministering to, maybe they're not listening to you when you're giving the gospel. Maybe they're even antagonistic towards you. That's okay. Because you're not doing it for them, you're doing it for the Lord. And so let's surrender to pray. Let's surrender to go if God would call us to. And let's continue to give. Because you are going to reap a harvest. You know, uh, the Bible, the scripture reminds us that the things that you can see are temporal, but the things that you can't see are eternal. That you shouldn't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and nut lust rust corrupts and where thieves break in and steal, but you should lay treasures for yourself in heaven. And God is doing incredible work around the world. God has blessed us in South Africa to. Uh, be involved with seeing young people saved through the school, people saved through the church, my wife ministering through her ministry. But you know, we're no different than you. We're just using whatever talents God has given us, except we're using over there what you're using here. And let me just challenge you to keep uh, making yourself available for God to use you and to serve right where you are.